please turn in your copy of the scriptures to First Peter chapter two. Be in First Peter chapter two, verse one through three. So taking a little break from Genesis. It's been a great study in Genesis. First Peter chapter two. We'll read the first three verses. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We need it so. God, I pray begin by your Holy Spirit within us softening our hearts to be receptive to what you have to say. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your peace that you give us in Jesus. Amen. Uh, does the name Ferdinand Damaris stick out to anybody by chance? Probably doesn't. Um, I don't even know why I asked the question. Uh, Ferdinand Damaris is known as the greatest imposter who's ever lived. And that's probably why nobody knows his name. You know, it's interesting how ironic it is. Uh, Ferdinand de Mera uh, is known for uh, impersonating so many different types of people. I'll, I'll read them off to you right here. But before I do, I have to give you kind of a caveat. Is that he is not qualified to do any of these professions. So just, I, I'm caveating Everything I'm about to read to you, he is not qualified to do at all. By no means. Bare, I think he barely had a high school degree. So let me just read to you a couple things. Is this. This is what he impersonated himself as. A civil engineer, a zoology grad student, a doctor of applied psychology, assistant warden of a prison. Like, who's checking CVs here? Like, who's, like, calling the credentials committee or something like that, right? Like, how do you get into these positions? But it gets better. Philosophy dean at a college, a nurse's assistant, a lawyer, a teacher, a monk, twice. Why would you want to be a monk twice? But that's not the best. The best is this. His best impersonation was a trauma surgeon. And he performed like 16 surgeries successfully. Yeah, I know, right? That, the story that I could put together was like he'd figure out that he had a surgery the next day and he'd go home and like read a book from like the public library or something like that. Gives you a lot, a lot of trust in our uh, health care. Uh, right? But he impersonated all these different things, and he is not qualified at all to do any of these. Uh, he, he impersonated many different types of professions. But what made him so convincing was this, is that when he took on a new identity each time, uh, he absorbed completely what it was to be in that profession. Like, he changed his attire, he changed his language, he changed his mindset. Everything about him, he absorbed that profession completely, where everything about him was changed when he had that new identity. Like, everything, attire to language to thought to mindset, he absorbed the identity completely where it characterized him. You couldn't tell the difference. And like Fernanda Merritt is that when we are given the new birth and we get a new identity, is that we absorb a lot of things, and that things completely change in us. 
our purposes, our nature, our dispositions, all these things are changed with a new identity that comes through the new birth. Is that we get a new birth and we get a new operation manual. We change and we think and we act and we speak differently. We even love things differently. And so when we have a new identity in Christ, when the new birth is given to us, and when I'm using this language, new birth, what I'm talking about is this, is that in the passage I read from John 3 and Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, it says this, is that what God has done in the new birth is that God has given us a new heart and a new spirit that we're able to actually obey God's commands. And His commands aren't burdensome. It's actually a joy to actually obey what God has said. And that comes from the new birth. And that God has actually written this law on our hearts. And now we can obey these things. So that's what the new birth does. It changes us from inside out where we are completely new people. That we have a new identity. And with these new, this new identity, we become a completely different person. Where it changes us, our purposes, our lives, our speech, our language. Everything about us changes in this new birth identity. And so let's look at a couple of things here. Is that... With this new birth, the first thing is this. The new birth results in death, which sounds really weird. New birth, it sounds like, I mean, just an oxymoron, right? The new birth results or requires death. Is that the new birth that we experience through the Word of God, it requires us to put our old habits to death, to actually kill them. The, um, you know, one thing you might not know about me, when something like pops up into my head and I don't know anything about it, I, I typically Google it. And like, like I, I just, I'll, I Google really random things. So a couple weeks ago, I was Googling the Witness Protection Program. Not that I'm looking at entering into it. Uh, <laughs> the people I work for are threatening my life. And uh, so I really, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, you know. So I was Googling the Witness Protection Program, just like, man, what all goes into the Witness Protection Program? Like, well, what do they do? And, uh, you know, the Witness Protection Program, they have a really, like, high, like, rate of protection. Like, it, it which is a, you should, right? Like, um, but they really have a high rate of protection for the people that they're protecting. But the number one rule that they have, they say that anybody who follows this rule, they've protected everybody. That's what they say even on their U.S. Marshall website. If they follow this one rule, then they've had nobody killed in the field. And this one rule is this, is that if you are put into the witness protection program, you cannot go back to your old hometown. You can't. You can't go and associate with your old friends. You can't. You can't do those old habits that you used to do because it potentially puts and endangers your own life and the life of your family. That's what it does. So they've said that if anybody who follows this one rule, they... They've never had anybody killed. But they cannot continue to associate with old habits and old things. And that is exactly what Peter is telling us here in the first verse. Is that when we receive the new birth, we cannot continue to operate under old habits because it is dangerous. That's why he says the first, two word, first three words here in verse 1. So put away. Put these things away. And this is the language of, uh, of basically taking off these old garments. Paul uses similar language in, in Colossians 3. He says, Put to death these things. And then he goes on to list all these things. He's saying, these very things could endanger you spiritually. So all these character traits that he lists out, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, he says, you've got to get rid of these because they are part of your old identity. And you have a new identity in Christ. And it's characterized by different things. You cannot carry over over... Uh, old practices into your new identity. 
It's completely different. And there's a reason why. There's a reason why uh, you can't continue to operate under these things. It's first is that you continue to operate under malice and envy and continue to practice these things. It actually calls your own new birth into question. It calls into, have you actually been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want you to go up just for a second and look at 122 through 25. Because here's what Peter does. He says, here's one trait that comes out of the new birth. Here's one. It says this. A sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love. Love, earnest, constant Brotherly, sincere love is the product of the new birth. And all these things are not what love does. So if you operate out of these things and not out of love, it's, it's calling into question your own new birth. Have you really truly been born again? Because if you have, then you don't continue to produce malice and envy and slander and deceit. You produce love for the community of faith. So you have to put these away because one they call into question your new identity second thing is this is that you know these very things they endanger the life of the community of faith that you that you live in you kind of wonder why why do you why, why does peter pull out malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander these don't seem like america's most wanted kind of sins you know what i mean like these don't seem like the bad boys like and I thought he would have said something like adultery or homosexuality or, or, or any of the, the big sins, right? But he points out malice and envy and slander and deceit. But I think there's a reason for that. Because if you remember that Peter is writing to a congregation who's dealing with uh, persecution, ver- at least verbally, and they're being oppressed for their faith and, and to leave their faith. And so, guess what? The easiest for them, them to do is to fall into these kind of sins. And that would endanger the actual fabric of the community of faith. Is that if you want to continue to have a thread of love and unity amongst yourselves, then don't do these things. But if you want to tear yourselves apart from within, then continue to talk bad about one another. Continue to deceive one another. Continue to speak maliciously against one another. These very sins will tear apart the fabric of the community that you worship in. So if you want to break yourselves apart, then you do these things. So these may not seem like they're very dangerous sins, but let me, let me just say this, cross point, is that I don't expect one big sin to tear apart our community. I expect really small sins to have greater potential of tearing apart the community of faith. Letting envy and deceit and malice exist within us. That is more dangerous than one big sin, whatever that may seem, may be. That's what we have to put away within ourselves and within the life of the community of faith. We have to put that to death because, guess what? It will tear us apart. It will tear us apart. So it could endanger, endanger us. As a community. And not only that, is that these sins, they don't accurately represent God. So if we are the people who have been born again, we've been given new birth, and we're made in the image of God, and that is our that is our present purpose in this world, is to image God, is to represent God well in this world. Then these sins, they don't represent God very well. Let me just give you one example in the in the book of First Peter itself. 
Look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 22. Verse 22, just consider this. This is talking about Jesus and his suffering and his death. It says in verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was, you can say it out loud, it's okay, deceit. Same word. So let me, let me give you the example. Is that Jesus, in his very worst of moments, and in the point where he is being tortured and about to be put to death, there was no deceit found on his mouth. In his worst case scenario, he is not trying to deceive or speak maliciously against his torturers. He says, but if we speak deceitfully, if we speak maliciously, if we speak with envy and strife, then we are not even accurately representing our Savior very well. So put away these things, because they will call into question your own salvation. Two, they will endanger the life of the community of faith that you worship in. And three, they don't represent God very well to the world. And that is our very purpose in this life, is to represent God well. So put away these things. Kill them, because they don't. So just by way of application, let me, let me help us think through this. Is, that, is there a particular little sin right now that maybe you're dealing with and you're trying to say, well, it's not that big a deal. You know, it's, uh, it's something just, you know, it's, me. it's not going to hurt. It's not hurting anybody, and it's not really hurting me. So it's not, it's not really that big a deal. It's not a, it's not a big sin, right? right? Let, me just, let me just warn you that, is that sin is sin, and it all deserves the same punishment. And that sin will kill you. As, as I said this last week, John Owen says, kill sin or it will be killing you. And so it may not be a seemingly big, big sin in your eyes, but it is a big sin to God because every, every sin is saying, God, I don't care what you think or who you are or what you say. I'll do what I want to do in this life because I'm God and you're not. That's what sin is saying. And so you may think that it's a small little sin that you can, you can control. Let me, let me warn you, you can't. It will control you. There is no sin that you should play with. You should put all of them away. Even these little things that may not pop out as necessarily big sins. Don't allow these to exist in you or in the community, this community that we worship in, Crosspoint. Second thing is this. Is that not only does the new birth result in uh, uh, death, us putting to death things that are from our old life, but it also, it results in new desires. Is that with the new birth, we want different things. We love different things. I don't know if anybody else has had this experience. Maybe it's just me. Uh, is when, you know, you, you love a food, and then you get actually sick, and then you hate that food after it. Anybody else had that experience, or is that just me? It's been, it's been cheese fries are on my list. Uh, homemade cookie dough ice cream is on my list. Don't ask me why we tried it. Uh, we, I, I got sick on both of those things. And now I don't ever want to see, like even thinking of it right now, I feel a little queasy. Like just like, like man. So it's so funny, like you have an experience with a food and then like you don't want it anymore after that, right? Like you just hate it. Or maybe it's the opposite, like you hate a food because you've never necessarily tried it or tried it. Like this example just popped in my head. Pimento and cheese. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. I, I always thought, man, that is the grossest stuff because I had it out of that can, you know, or 
or out of the little Tupperware thing, you're like, oh, that is the grossest stuff. But there's actually other different forms of pimento and cheese. Like, you can make it hot. Like, it actually tastes good that way. Like, it's so crazy how food works, is that you have an experience with it, and then you either hate it or love it and things like that. And so it changes with the experience that you have with it. And this is where this illustration goes, is this, is that when we are given the new birth, our taste buds change. There are things that we didn't want, we now want. And there's things that we used to want that we don't want anymore. And particularly this, is that when we're given the new birth, we now have a longing and a craving for God's word. That's what he's saying in verse 2. So like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's things that you didn't used to love, but now because God has given you a new heart and new spirit, these are the things that you are going to love. You are going to long and you are going to crave for these things. That's the illustration that he's, trying to, that he's using with newborn infants, how they long and they want food and sustenance and nourishment. And he's saying, this is you. He's not calling us baby Christians. He's saying, this is your kind of craving. You want this food. You want God's word. So it changes us is that we want and we crave and we hunger and we have hunger pains. We're urging, we're longing for God, more of God's Word. We love it. We love it. Again, I was doing another weird Google search. And why we have hunger pains. Don't know why. I just wanted to know, like, why does my stomach, like, hurt? Like, what is it doing to itself to make it hurt when I'm hungry? <laughs> you know what's funny? You know how when you Google something and there's those little, like, those uh, pop-down boxes where, like, there's questions, other questions that have been asked. Seriously, one of the questions that were asked was, how to get my hunger pains to go away? It does not give you any hope for this world, like, to read those questions. Seriously, like, how do I get my hunger pains to go away? You know, like, and I just had to, I had to click on it because I knew it was going to be awesome. <laughs> like, there's also awesome people in this world who will give really awesome answers to those kind of questions. First answer, Eat. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> they had a lot of grace and patience with that person who asked that question. And so everybody has had that experience where your stomach just hurts and it churns and it's painful because it wants food. And so, like, cat food looks like ribeye steaks. Like, it's, it's okay, terrible illustration, really? I mean, like, you get the hyperbole that I'm using, right? Come on. But... Everything just looks so good to you. That's why you don't go to the grocery store hungry, because you'll buy everything, right? Everybody operates out of that principle. And so you're urging, you're longing, you want to. This is what he's trying to get across here in verse 2, is that with the new birth, with a new heart and new spirit, you want God's word. You know that you have to have it. And so your love has changed for it. You may not have wanted it in the past, but now you do. Because you know by it, it will sustain you. Because it is the very thing that brought you and gave you the new birth. And so what 122 through 25 is telling us is that the instrument by which God gives us new birth is through his word. So the word of God gives us, brings us, is the instrument that God uses to bring us into salvation and is the very thing that sustains our salvation. Long for, crave for the Bible. So this is the type of longing that we're to have, the type of yearning that we're to have for the Bible. But maybe this morning your experience with the Bible is not not that. Maybe, let's just kind of be transparent for a second. Maybe you feel like the Bible is boring, outdated, um, it's not applicable, not relevant to you. Um, you know, other things are more important. 
no, just come back to it. You know, the Bible's just boring. And here's what I have to say to you. The Bible's not boring. I, I'm boring. The Bible's not boring. It's not. The Bible, let's just consider what the psalmist says about the Bible. Let's, let's see how the Bible speaks about itself. Listen to this. Psalm 1-2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. Psalm 19-10, they are more desirable, this is the commandments, they're more desirable than gold, than abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, dripping from the honeycomb. In the ancient world, honey and gold are like the most awesome things that you could ever possess. And he's saying, the word of God, the commandments of God are far, far, far better than them. Psalm 119.103, how sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. I have your decrees as a heritage forever. Indeed, they are the joy of my heart. See how the psalmist speaks about the Bible? Doesn't sound like he thinks the Bible's boring. Because he knows that with us who have experienced new birth, we long and we crave this word. Because we know we need it. So our desires change with this thing. And so just consider this this morning. If you're if your approach, if your disposition towards the Bible is it's boring, it's useless, maybe the problem isn't with the Bible. Maybe the problem is with you. It's always easy to accuse the Bible, but it's never easy to accuse yourself. Let, that be, let me say it one more time. So consider this. Maybe the problem isn't with the Bible if you think it's boring. Maybe the problem is with your own heart because the Bible is not boring. It is the story of God continually reaching out his hand to his people and them continually slapping it away saying, I don't want it. And God intervening in this story and saying, you're going to get it. And he comes in the person of Jesus. So do you have a craving for the Bible? Do you have a longing for the Bible? Because this is one of the results of the new birth is that we long and we crave and we want this thing, this, this Bible. And the way that it starts is that I know that some of you might be saying, Wes, um, okay, I know that I'm supposed to love the Bible, I'm supposed to crave it, but you're giving me no solutions to. One, I would have to say, like, inherently, it, with the new birth, we, we just have a love for the Bible, but it doesn't start with, you know, the next day you wake up and you just, oh, I got to read the whole book of Leviticus. I don't know if anybody is there. <laughs> what can I? And so, but here's the thing is that to create a longing and a love for the Bible, you have to begin feasting on it daily. Coming back to it over and over again, even when you don't feel like it. Because as one of your pastors, I'm going to tell you, not every day I feel like opening up the Bible. You may not feel like every day you need to take your medicine. But guess what? You do it because you know you need to stay alive. And so, to cultivate this love and this craving for the Bible is to come back to it every day, every day walking, slowly but surely. So feasting on it will continue to spark a love and a craving for this word. So that's, that's how you do it. You want to long and crave for the Bible? Begin by reading it daily, even when you don't want to. Because God will he will stir in these affections. And so, with this longing and this new craving, these new desires for the Bible, for, for the pure spiritual milk, is that it will result in, this new birth will result in spiritual growth. That's the third point. 
is that the craving we have for God's word because of the new birth will result in spiritual development of some form. It will produce particular things in us. I don't know if any of you know this, but malnutrition is a serious problem in our world, affecting over 900 million people. And that it has the, um, it, it holds um, the highest mortality rate for children is malnutrition, where they're not able to get uh, the food and nourishment that they need to survive. It's a serious problem. And I, I say there's some correlation within the church, too, is that there is a spiritual malnourishment that for too long we have been people where the Bible has functioned as a fire extinguisher. It's over in the corner, and it's there when I need it. Rather than saying, I need it every day because there's a fire every day when I wake up. So for too long, we've seen it as just kind of on the side. I don't really need it. Nothing is life-threatening right now. But here's the thing. Is that what we're learning in the book of Hebrews is every day we wake up, there are threats to our faith. There are threats to us falling by the wayside and away from God. And so every day we're coming to the Bible to remind ourselves, this is, this is how we sustain ourselves in this life. This is the source of spiritual growth. Not only is it the instrument that breeds in us and creates in us a love for God, the new birth, but it also is a thing that sustains us. It's the source of our salvation, telling us of who Christ is, but it also is a thing that sustains us in our salvation. This word, this very word, it sustains us. It is our food. It is our constant source for spiritual nourishment. So if you want to grow, if you want to produce more fruit, if you want to look more like Jesus Christ, you cannot do it apart from reading these words of what God has given us. Jesus even understood this. If you remember in the story in Matthew 4, when he's being presented with all these different temptations from, from Satan, and Satan says, hey, you look kind of hungry. You want some bread? And what does Jesus say? Man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus believed it. I think we probably should too. So if you want to sustain yourself, if you want to grow spiritually and look more like Christ, you can't do it by detaching yourself from these words, from what the Bible says. Is that one of the results of new birth is us growing to look more like Jesus Christ. And the instrument that God has given us to grow to look more like Jesus Christ is His very words. So, look at over the course of your life, or even over the course of this past month or past year, and say, let's look at the spiritual development. How have I grown this past year? And if you're saying, I don't, I don't really see any growth, maybe you should... Maybe you should look at the diagnosis. Maybe how much time have you spent in prayer and in God's word? Think about that. So this is calling us to evaluate these things. Because it is the evidence. That's why he says, he quotes from Psalm 34 in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, is that these results are, are from the experience that we have actually tasted, the that experienced the goodness of the Lord. If you've experienced the goodness of the Lord, then you're going to want to put things to death. You're going to want to have a new desire and longing for God's Word. You're going to want to grow in Christ-likeness if you have truly experienced and tasted that the Lord is good. This is the evidence of it. You don't 
You won't have to be forced or coerced into these things. I'm learning a difficult, uh, a difficult thing by being a parent is that when you have to give kids medicine or new food, it's like a hostage negotiation. Uh, you know, and I look back on my own life and I think, yeah, I mean, you know, it, for me particularly, it was cough syrup. Like, I hated cough syrup. And, you know, I was telling the students this a couple weeks ago, y'all are so spoiled. Like, you know, y'all get this flavored stuff now, grape and, and, and cherry. You know what the flavors were uh, you know, of cough syrup when I was growing up? Motor oil. That's what, uh, that's what it was. Motor oil. It's like, that's what it tasted like. It was terrible. So, you think, you know, my mom, Mom's like, you got a cough? I'm like, no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't have a cough. Like, you, you try and pretend and everything. Oh, I'm fine. It's like, it's like you do everything. And so, you know, as a parent, you all know this, the, the coercion tactics that you take. You know, and then you're like, kid's like, bah, get that out of here, right? Godzilla, King Kong, you know, just, just hit it out of the way. And, uh, and then they're like, oh, I'll hide it in some Cheerios. Now, then I'll zoom it in their mouth. Like, one of those kind of things, you know, like they, they tell, oh, there's ain't a Cheerio in my mouth, right? Or that what it usually ends up is just a headlock and you're like, like I, was, I was telling some college students this. I was like, one of the best techniques that I've learned as a parent is when you give your kid something to eat that they don't like or a medicine, you blow on their face. Like, they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, it's magic. Like, it works. You blow on their face, and they just have to swallow. Like, it's awesome. And so you just think, you know, all these coercion tactics and things like that, you get kids to eat. Thankfully, with the new birth, it's not like that. There's no arm turning. There's no head locking. There's none of these kind of things. Is that with the new birth, with the new heart that has the written word of God on it, we now want these things because we've tasted the goodness and experienced the goodness of God that we don't have to have our arm twisted. We don't have to be forcefully coerced. Is that we want these things now because we know and we have experienced the goodness of the Lord in Jesus Christ. Is that we don't have to be forcefully coerced in these things. We want them. We long for them. So thankfully, we don't have to go searching for the source of spiritual growth. We have it here in God's Word. And so just a couple minutes to kind of bring all this together. Is that if this is what it's to produce, a couple of things that we can think over is that consider Consider the trajectory of your life and the spiritual growth that you've seen. Maybe different seasons, different patterns of that. But have you seen spiritual growth in your life? This, this text is calling us to evaluate our own selves. That's what it's doing. Is that if the new birth is to produce in us uh, a desire to put things to death from our old habits of life, to long and crave for God's word, and to, uh, and to basically to grow in Christ-likeness, then these are the three ways that you can, you can evaluate your life, your spiritual life. Have have you seen yourself putting things to death? Have you seen yourself recognizing those things in your own heart and saying, i got to kill this or it will kill me? Have you seen those things? Two, ha, ha, what's your pattern been like with God's Word? What does that look like? Do you have a longing and a craving for it? And three, have you seen yourself produce the fruits of the Spirit, more, more love for others and, and grace and peace towards others and mercy? Have you seen those things? Consider these. And understand that all these are going to be produced out of a heart that has been given new birth. 
And this is what, what is happening. Is that in this, God is creating a new type of people. God is creating a new type of people who have the Spirit of God in them. And they're not going to be okay with continuing in sin patterns in the way that the world lives. And that they're going to love things that they didn't used to love. They actually love, they love this. That's not what they should love. And they actually want to grow and actually develop as people and, and stop doing habits and traits that actually hurt others and hurt them. It's weird. It looks weird to the, to the outsiders. But this is the kind of people that God is creating for himself by the new birth, making people new, giving them new life. And so this morning, for believers, let me encourage you. Is this is that if you've seen yourself kind of fall by the wayside and saying, you know, I've struggled with this and I'm not doing this, just know that God hasn't shut the door on you. That right right here today, you can start back up and say, you know what, I'm going to read the Bible. (laughs) You know, I've recognized sin in my life and I can put it to death. I have the ability to do that because I have the Spirit of God and the Word of God written on my heart. I, I, I want to grow in Christ-likeness. So you don't have to wait for anything, believer. So you've been given the new birth and a new identity, and you can have that. Second, for unbelievers in here, if there is anybody, realize this. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what your past is. I don't know what you've been doing. But I do know this, is that there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, who opens up His arms and says, you can be a new person is that I can give you a better identity than the Witness Protection Program. This identity, it it doesn't come with a new home or with a new car or with a new job or anything. This comes with new life and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to the God that created them and redemption and cleansing from their sins, forgiveness. This is the new life that I can give you, and it's better than homes and cars and jobs. So this is what Jesus Christ offers you, unbeliever. If you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, this is what Christ offers you this morning. And this, what we've read through 1 through 3, is this is what He gives you. He gives you a way to put to death that old identity that you might be disgraced of and embarrassed of. You don't have to continue living in that way. You don't have to continue living under that identity. And He gives you new loves. Like for His Word. And He grows you and makes you a a better person because of what Christ has done. So this morning, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. If this morning you'd like to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, myself or Jim will be here to talk with you after the service. I believe this morning, this will be my last, my last urge to you. Is that in light of what the gospel has done for us, that Jesus Christ has come and he's died for our sins, given us forgiveness, and that we've tasted this goodness and experienced this, then this morning and tomorrow and the next day and the weeks to come and the years to come is that you have the ability and strength to put sin to death and that you can long and crave and feast on God's Word, that you can grow in Christ-likeness. But it is not going to come by a magical pill or a spell or anything like the snap of a finger. 
But God has given us the strength to grow and cultivate these things in us by his word and by his spirit. Let us pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word and how we need it. So let us, God, this morning and the rest of this day and the rest of this week and the rest of our lives be uh, characterized by people who long and crave for this word because we know what the gospel has done for us, that we've tasted and experienced the goodness of the Lord in Jesus Christ. So let us sing in light of that. Let us pray in light of that. Let us read in light of that. Let us preach in light of that. Let us evangelize in light of that. Let us love in light of that. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Amen.